Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another mini episode of Dear Prudence. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Jaya Saxena, currently a staff writer at Eater, whose latest book, Crystal Clear, an essay collection about how humans assign meaning and power to objects, was published in December with Quirk Books. She lives in Queens. And now here's our first letter. Help, I'm not attracted to my husband anymore. Dear Prudence, I've been with my husband, Tim, asterisk, for nearly seven years. In the first couple of years in our relationship, we were affectionate, had a great sex life, loved being around each other. Over the last few years, I have found myself less and less attracted to him, which has put a damper on both our sex life and our overall relationship. I don't have a specific reason. It could be that he has gained weight since we've met. He's been unemployed for a while due to COVID, but these feelings started before his unemployment, or I'm just bored. He loves me so much and always wants to be affectionate and touch, have sex, kiss, etc. But I find it extremely difficult. It's like I put walls up, but I don't know how to take them down. I care about him so much and I worry our relationship is really suffering. How can I get myself to be attracted to him again? How can I bring back my desire for him? Oof. I mean, there's a whole cottage industry, especially of like Christian marriage summer camp retreats of like... <laughs> keeping the flame alive, how to rekindle your desire for each other. Um, so I guess you could always go that route. But I'm wondering, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I have like a strong opinion on whether or not it is possible through willpower or effort or application to revive attraction or desire for somebody else. I'm not sure if I have an opinion. Do you? I, I mean, I was reading this and I was like, okay, you know, they've been married for nearly seven years and talking about the first couple of years of their relationship, you know, it's possible there could be room for this just being some natural ebbs and flows of the ways relationships work. I think mm-hmm. everyone goes through periods where, you know, if you have a sexual relationship, periods where you can't keep your hands off each other and periods where, you know, maybe you're a little more chill. Um, I certainly think, I know, like she mentions, these feelings started before unemployment and COVID. I certainly don't think COVID has helped anything in this way. I know, you know, personally, there are plenty of times where I've just not left the house for many, many days uh, or been very depressed at the state of the world. And that's not really an aphrodisiac <laughs> for, um, you know, for any sort of marriage. So there's there's certainly that sort of stuff to consider. But, you know, it, it certainly sounds like it's been a real problem. And yeah, I, I like you, I don't think this is something, I don't think there are steps you can take to just convince yourself that you're attracted to someone again. If it's a level where, you sort of trust that something will come back. You know, maybe it's just a matter of waiting. But if you have the gut feeling, you know, that you really are not attracted to this person anymore and that you want attraction and sex to be part of your life and your relationship, yeah, I think that, you know, could be a serious thing that, you know, needs to be looked at. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the general, you know, 
whether it is possible to revive your desire for him is, I think, an open question. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not. The The hard part of this answer is if you feel alienated from your partner and you think, I know something he doesn't, and he always wants to be affectionate and touch in ways that I find extremely difficult to tolerate, and so I will either make up excuses to avoid them or kind of push myself to go through the motions of something I find intolerable. And he comes away from that experience thinking, we just connected. We just had sex. We were just like close and and cuddly. That was great. And I come away from it thinking, God, you know, I, I feel contempt that it was so easy to lie for you. And then guilt, uh, lie to you rather, uh, and then guilt for feeling contempt for you when all you want is affection. That is a recipe for further alienation. So part of the problem is, if there's going to be any way forward, your partner needs to know what is going on with you. And you also need to find a way to share that that is not devastating. Right. Or or not more devastating than it needs to be. And I think, letter writer, you need to do a little bit more soul searching about, do you really not know? Do you really not have a specific reason? Because I'll say originally, uh, as I often do in this letter, I edited out how many pounds overweight she thinks he is. People love to tell me how many pounds they have mentally guessed uh, their partner is overweight, and they love to give me that detail. Like, I'm going to be like, oh, well, if it was number Y, you're a bad person. But if it's number Z, you're a good person, and it makes sense. Yeah. And and that's not to say, you know, I, I feel like you've had letters before of lots of people saying, hey, my my partner's body has changed in this way, and I'm not feeling the same attraction. And I don't want to make this letter writer feel guilty or like she has to be attracted to literally, you know, equally attracted to any manifestation of her husband's body. But I also think, right, if, you know, if that is the issue, I think you got to name it for yourself and you got to do some soul searching of whether that is actually an issue or whether that's just some internalized fat phobia. Yeah, I, I think that I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because th- this is a point where I think there are two important values or interests that I would want to encourage her to hold. Mm-hmm. And they are not necessarily in conflict with one another directly, but they are very distinct from one another. And so one of them is forcing yourself to keep your feelings to yourself and go through the motions of physical intimacy that you don't want is not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for your relationship. You should not do that to yourself. Um, you should give yourself uh, the frightening permission to say, I don't want to do this right now. And then to deal with your partner's reaction to that information. Um, that's really, really important. That's not going to be the answer. Like uh, grinning and bearing it or like just walking it off, um, putting yourself through the motions until you feel good again, uh, I, I don't think is usually a very productive approach to sex and physical intimacy. Yeah. And it is also true that if, as you know, I I see this letter, you say, these feelings started before he was unemployed. Uh, They started over the last few years. By the way, he happened to gain weight over those few years. Who knows why it is? Uh, You know, investigate how much of this has to do with your reaction to fatness. Um, I have a hard time with this because I'm just like, it's not hard to be attracted to a fat lover. No, it's just no, it's just not like it's it's great and you should enjoy it and have a good time. Bodies are great. Um, flesh is great. Size is great. Um, it's not hard. Um, and, and you don't have to like 
try to convince yourself that it's somehow more virtuous or it makes you a better person. And, you know, dealing with all the various messages of just like disgust and repulsion that are, you know, crammed at people's heads about fatness um, kind of from jump is you, you can't remove that as a factor, I think. Um, but again, that doesn't mean just like say I'm bad and fat phobic. Now it's my job to be a good person and be attracted to him. So I realize these things are slightly in contention. Um, they will not in themselves solve your entire problem, but it's a start. Yeah. I think certainly being honest about how those things are connected is a, is a good start. Um, and I think at least just being able to start by being honest when you don't want to go through the motions, don't want to put that wall up just to endure whatever affection, you know, is being thrown at you. And or let's um, say offered, let's say offered, offered. not thrown wanna... at you. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Whatever affection is offered to you. Um, yeah. I, I think there, there just needs to be a little more honesty, both with herself and with her husband. And hopefully that will be a step that reveals other things. Yeah. Yeah. I think the last thing that I'll say is letter writer, you know, you say that you, you kind of put in the same category, any kind of affection, any kind of touch, sex and kissing. That's a lot. That That's not just sex. And you say too, that this has put a damper, not just on our sex life, but also our relationship. So if, as you reflect on this, you think for the last several years, almost any time he wants to touch me, I find it extremely difficult I, I don't know that this is about putting up walls or, um, you know, waiting for desire to come back because you're just not feeling very interested in sex. At a certain point, it's not like about investigating whether you think you have an ethical or an unethical reason for not finding your husband attractive anymore. If any touch from him feels pretty difficult for you, um, it may be that you share this with him and you try to be as loving and respectful as you can, and he is devastated, and he feels like a fool for the last few years, thinking that every time he hugged you or put an arm around you in passing or kissed you or tried to have sex, you were struggling. And, you know, I say that not to make you feel guilty, but that would be a reasonable reaction on his part. So, uh, because I just don't think a good way through this is hide a lot of it, minimize a lot of it, even though, again, I really want to stress, speak carefully and respectfully and like you are talking to a human being. Um, it may be that you do not, even if you were to have a great conversation and you felt your desire for him start to revive, he might, with that information, feel so devastated and so self-conscious that he did not want to touch or be intimate anymore and as devastating as that might be, that might be the best way to acknowledge reality. You know, he is going to have his own response here and you must let him have it. You you, you simply must. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is hard. I do feel for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think thinking of it almost in a way of if you were in his shoes, you know, hopefully there is still deep caring between you two. I don't think you hate your husband by any means. I don't think you want him to have a a life without affection, um, a life without love. And if you don't feel like you could provide that, you know, I, I think there is certain, there's a certain goodness in just being able to acknowledge that and giving him the opportunity to, to find that in other places. That's a great, great 
way of thinking about it. Ask yourself, if my husband was feeling this way, even if I was devastated by this information, would I rather know so I could give him that space and we could figure out what we actually could give one another? Or would I want him to swallow his indifference or uh, repulsion and go through the motions with me? Yeah. And I, I, I imagine you would think, I do not want him to go through the motions with me. I would hate that for him. Um, and so treat him with that same care and consideration. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> that one's hard. Luckily, our next one's nice and easy. Oh, yeah. This is, there is a straightforward answer to this one. <laughs> this is, you are making your life so hard for yourself and you don't have to. <sighs> All right. Subject, I love my family, but I hate our weekly video chats. Dear Prudence, for the last couple of years, I've lived about 500 miles away from my home city, where the rest of my family still lives, but I still have a close relationship with them. Pre-pandemic, I'd visit every six weeks or so and kept in fairly regular contact with texts, phone calls, and the occasional video chat. When the pandemic first began, my parents organized a few video calls between them, my three siblings, our elderly grandparents, and me, which was great at first. But somehow this became a scheduled weekly call, and it's assumed that everyone will attend. I really love my family and I miss them, but after nearly a year, I've really started to dread this. It always lasts at least an hour and inevitably the conversation always turns to COVID, what the death rate is like, what the infection rate is like, and arguments over masks or how the government is handling the situation. I feel drained and stressed out. A couple weeks ago, I just couldn't face it. I lied and claimed that I was working on a time-sensitive project. I'm desperate to stop having these regular calls, but I feel incredibly guilty. Debating every week is a nightmare for me, but it may be really helpful for other members of my family, and surely I should be trying to support them through this difficult time too. Is there anything I can do to bring an end to these calls or at the very least make them a bit easier to deal with? All right. So there are yeah. like a couple of things. Yeah. You don't have to go to these calls. You don't you say that you already had a fine enough time being in contact with your family through texts, phone calls, and the occasional what sounds like a one-on-one video chat. Do that. Yeah. Do that. Drop in once a month. Yeah. It's fine. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like the letter writer doesn't say what happened when they said they were on a time-sensitive project and didn't go to this call. Like, if their family... Sounds like it went fine. It sounds like it went fine. Like, if their family sent them you know, nonstop text messages telling them what a horrible, ungrateful child they were for not appearing to the 50th Zoom call in a row, then yeah. okay, there would be another conversation to have about your family. It sounds like they were like, all right, cool, see you next week. And I think, I think a lot of this stress about what is going to go on with these calls. Not that this doesn't make it serious, but I think it is a little self-inflicted. I, I think, think a lot of the pressure is coming from inside the house, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And and right, that doesn't make it any easier to deal with. But I think you can just not makes it a go. Little easier. <laughs> makes it a little easier. But I, I, you know, it doesn't make it less easy to feel, I think. Sure. I understand yeah. what it's like to put pressure on yourself and it feels so overwhelming and you don't know what to do with it. But let this be the permission, you can just not go and you can bring back up the text messages. And if anyone asks, just say, hey, sometimes I find these calls draining or I have some other stuff to do. Um, can I give you a call tomorrow? Yeah. yeah. And you don't even like, if that feels too overwhelming, 
you know, again, this is just like it sounds like an assumption and no one else has like dipped out. So you feel like you have to wait for somebody else to give you permission. You are an adult human being. This is a phone call. They can't force your phone to keep going. Um, just say, you know, oh, I'm not gonna be able to make it next week, guys, but I'll try to stop by for 10 or 15 minutes next time. That's it. You just need to inform them of your intention. You don't need to go into detail. You don't have to have a big come to Jesus conversation about whether or not things are draining to you or exciting and energizing for them. You can just say, not always free on Fridays, but I'll try to stop by when I can. Yeah. Exactly. And I think, you know, that they said it's assumed that everyone will attend. I don't think that that's actually been stated by anybody in the family that we're all going to attend. I think it was just a habit that everyone fell into because there was nothing else to do. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully with more vaccines being available all the time, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks, this will just come to a conclusion and you'll be able to drive up to see your family every six weeks again, the way you did before the pandemic. <laughs> but I think this is going to be something you'll have to do again at some point in the future. At some oh, point certainly. in the future, it seems likely that your family might enjoy or expect something that does not suit you. And nothing you've described here is like, wow, their expectations are horrible. Like, you, you, you'll need to cultivate this skill unless you want to keep feeling this bad about future family interactions. So, you know, the fact that it took you a year to make up a work project, I... I, you know, I don't always advise people this, but like, I hope you get a little bit more, uh, like assertive about coming up with convenient lies every once in a while. <laughs> um, that's fine. I, I am so not against that. Absolutely. Like, you know, there's always the risk that you might get caught and then you'll look a fool. But if you're just like, oh, I have to run an errand today that I can't get out of fucking make it up. They're 500 miles away. They won't know. Yeah. Exactly. No, and I think there's also space for this where you don't even necessarily have to lie. You, or have a specific lie. You can just say, uh -huh. hey guys, I got to go. See you later. Right. You, you, that's, I think that's even better than my whole lying <laughs> thing, which is just like, you don't need to furnish them with an explanation as to why you are not every Friday attending a full hour. This isn't the Gilmore Girls and they're not putting your kid through Chilton. <laughs> you can just say, oh, hey guys, got to get out of here. So good to see you. And, and same thing too. You don't have to have a big you know, one and done conversation about yeah. like the debates. You can just say something like, guys, it's so good to see your faces. I'm really wiped out this week. I just don't have it in me to discuss death rates. Does anyone want to talk about movies? Yeah. Yeah. That's a totally reasonable thing. To, you're not saying like, shut the hell up, you vultures. <laughs> like that's a very mild intervention. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so I think there are lots of the, right. Either saying, hey, I can't make it this week. Um, either saying, Hey, I would love to have a phone call, uh, dipping out early by just saying you got to go, um, or changing the subject. So many tools at your disposal to make these not as excruciating. And I, and I really, and I really feel for this person because I, I certainly have been on like large family zooms over the course of the pandemic that feel very exhausting feels like you can't actually have a conversation with anyone because they're like 16 people on the screen and it's just really tiring. So like I, and I get why you don't want to do this. <laughs> yeah. And it's fine. You do not have to like it. And, and don't worry about like, maybe it's helpful for them. Who knows? Maybe it is. Maybe they think it's helpful, but it's actually not. Like if they need to debate, they can do that. You know, they can go find people. It sounds like other members of your family like doing it too. So it's not your job to make sure they get to be helped by debating. You get to say, We've done a year of this, an hour a week for a year. You have had 52 hours of debates with me. 
I'm done. We've hit my, you know, my, my Malcolm Gladwell 52 hours of expertise is all you're getting on debates. <laughs> right. And I think that's another thing that they don't say that any family member has come forward and said, you know, if it weren't for these weekly Zoom calls in which I require every single one, every single member of my close family to participate, if this didn't happen every single week, I would succumb to the deep, deep despair of social isolation. No one said that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, not, none of this is hinging on you being there for the full hour every week. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> Just as as an adult, start giving yourself a lot more permission in the future um, without over explaining yourself or begging permission or waiting for someone else to do it first to just say things like, I got to head out. Great to see you guys. Or, mm-hmm. hey, can we take a break from COVID discussion? That perfectly reasonable things to say. Yeah. If they have really over the top responses to that, you know, you may have to deal with that, but hopefully they won't. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Terrific. Yeah. You know, good luck. Enjoy, you know, getting off those fake internet connectivity problems. You know, I just, I want to uh, give you a lot of it. options. Love guys. It. Oh, sorry. You, you froze. Sorry. Uh, I got to go. <laughs> My phone just exploded. Oh. Uh. Just stand really still for two seconds and then close out of it and make it seem like you froze. (laughs) See, the one problem with this is I feel like I really shoot myself in the foot for if I ever want to employ this strategy in the future. Um, Luckily, like most of the people that I'm close with aren't like, oh, I listen to every podcast episode you've ever made. But I am, you know, publicizing some of the strategies that I like to hold in reserve. I think that also needs to be normalized a little bit. I feel like there have been plenty of friend Zooms where I've said, all right, guys, like I'm going to go watch a movie. I'll see you later. I don't think I really watched a movie, but if they they caught me and I said, okay, you know what? I lied. I was just tired after an hour and a half of talking and I needed to not look at a screen anymore. I'd hope that most of my friends would be like, yeah, that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. Ooh, ooh, one last one. Mm. It's good. It, it, it works and, it, and it's not a lie because I feel like I've, I've advised <laughs> too many lies today. Um, and, and that can sometimes make your life more complicated. And also, you know, lying is generally bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Try to avoid it. You can it. say, hey, I'm going to let you go. Oh, love that one. <laughs> I'm going to let you go. It's simply a statement of intent. Doesn't say shit about what you're going to do with the rest of your afternoon. Yeah. I'm going to let you go. Yeah, and it makes you seem like a sort of like munificent. Is that a word? I'm not 100% sure. It's a vibe uh, at least. <laughs> it's a vibe. Um, like a generous hunter who's just come across like a baby deer in a trap and be like, you know what? You, I shall, I shall tend to your injuries and release you back into the world. You're welcome. She's like, oh, thank you. You've released. I didn't realize you were holding me, but thank you. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Oh, so many things to use. That's our mini episode of Dear Prudence for this week. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. As always, if you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. 